Hello and welcome to episode number 296 of the Armin Show podcast, which has been interesting from the start and continues to be with all kinds of cool content, guests, people. On this one, we have, how cool is this? Yancy Strickler, author of This Could Be Our Future, co-founder of Kickstarter, Good Energy. He joins us on this show. Welcome to this episode. What is up? Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. Now, I, I spoke about energy there just for a so second, but it's very important because when you feel nice with certain people, there's opportunity to work with those people and collaborate in some form, and it just feels better. And when it's not there, it is you can only do so much to assuage it in some way to make it smoother. I had to bring that up. Now, people tend to like some form of background. I think for those who are not aware, how did you get to becoming co-founder of Kickstarter to where you are now in Vancouver, to where you were before, to where we are now, the blockchain of life? Um, uh, so I, I grew up in uh, Southwest Virginia. Um, I grew up on a farm and, um, you know, cared about music and uh, writing, especially growing up. And um was into underground music, uh, indie music. And um, my first job after college, I moved to New York and uh, I became a music critic. And it kind of been my life dream. I was one of the very first writers for Pitchfork. I wrote for Spin Magazine, The Village Voice. And I made a living as a music critic for about 10 years, um, reviewing records, interviewing bands, uh, doing things like that. And, um, and, you know, loved that, loved, loved the music world, but also could really see how if you weren't uh, an artist that had extremely high commercial aspirations, you really didn't have a place in the quote unquote industry of music. And it was very hard for you to make anything, you know, because the only albums are also the only movies, the only books that would get a green light are things that, you know, you can make that pitch like, we're all going to be rich, you know, this is going to be huge. And that's what a, you know, a traditional label is looking for. And, um, and so, you know, that was just like an obvious fact um, and a truth about the kinds of music and the scenes I was a part of. I even ran my own record label. Um, and, and it was around that time that I met, uh, made a new friend, a, a, a guy named Perry Chen. And um, we met in Brooklyn at a, restaurant where we were both kind of regulars and uh, became friends and he shared with me this idea he had had which was essentially the idea for crowdfunding and he had been wanting to to throw a concert in new orleans where he had been living and it had this idea of what if he proposed the concept of the concert online ask people to put up their credit card to buy tickets but that no one's credit cards would be charged unless the show sold out and if the show didn't sell out, then the show doesn't happen. But here's a way for people together to decide what should occur. And, um, and I mean, initially, I didn't like the idea. It sounded to me like American Idol. Um, you know, do we need more populism in, in we art? We choose you. Yeah. Um, but the more we talked about it, you know, it was really obvious how well it could work for niche communities and things that, you know, aren't big enough to merit a traditional check, but yet have a fervent fan base behind them. And we, you know, Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans essay came out around that same time. And this is like 2005, we're doing this. And, um, and it just seemed clear that there is a path here where artists can be supported by the people who care most about them. And indirectly, that of course has always been how the culture, you know, post 1950s mass media culture industry has worked. Like you buy a record, and some way you're supporting an artist. Mm -hmm. But you know, Kickstarter made that a direct relationship for the first time, and really normalized the idea of people directly contributing to artists and to creative projects that they want to be a part of. And that had never happened at a mass scale before, and it it took a while to normalize it. But now, you know, now it's the most normal thing in the world. This is true. When you mentioned that thousand true fans, it made me think of Srinivas Rao. He's a personal development writer that used to write with me like 10 years ago. And do you know him? Do you know him? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. 
and he has his book, The Audience of One, and he talks all about if you have a thousand true fans or even less than that, you're good to go and you don't need the larger space of support. It's a nice feature that comes with actually connecting with people. One, I like the, the indie music scene. Did you connect with certain bands and assist them in their growth or did you like to work with them in any way? What was your connection with the music scene? Yeah, I mean, I was a, you know, an Uber fan more than anything. I mean, just like, a, you know, in high school, college, pre-internet, early internet, you know, like I would just buy magazines to look for the names of bands I hadn't heard of before. So I could just try to find out what they were. You know, just, you're just so hungry for different things. Just try to explore and, and push the boundaries of your taste. And, um, and yeah, you know, I, I was going to shows, you know, basement shows, house shows all the time in New York and seeing so many young bands and seeing bands that would go on to like blow up you know, I saw the strokes super early, many, many, many things like that. Yeah, yeah. Was, um, and um, and some of those bands I just loved. And so at the time I worked at my day job was at a digital music service, um, eMusic, the first big digital music service. And, uh, you know, I just had this idea of we, sh I just want to start releasing these CDRs that people are selling at their shows of like mm -hmm. their first demos, the first eight songs for whatever band, like, let's start releasing those as records and let's help these young artists. And so convinced eMusic to let me do that. And, and then we started putting out two records a month and created this fascinating financial arrangement where eMusic took zero money. All the money went directly to the artist. I said, we want no, we only want the right to sell it. The artist retains full rights. Like we get no rights whatsoever in doing this. I created the most favorable deal possible. Um, and then we would just sell the records and, and, and try to push them and highlight them as like, here are these emerging artists, you know, get it here first and then it'll be available everywhere else later. Mm -hmm. It was a huge success. I mean, one of the first bands that did it, um, you know, three months later, they got their first check for sales and they got 30 grand. And that was like such life-changing money for them. And they went on to sign to Saddle Creek and became like a quite big artist. And, um, but there are a couple of interesting things in that. Number one was that, creating a financial arrangement where the, the money went actually went to artists. And all these people were actually getting quite, ni quite nice checks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once these platforms started taking, you know, you're not taking your 70% or whatever. It's actually quite meaningful money that an artist gets. And right. so everyone was getting checks for, you know, thousands of dollars. And, but even though they were having that kind of financial success, um, artists would inevitably, the ones who did well, more recognized labels would try to sign them. And then the artist would face this decision. Do I want to be solely on my own or do I want to be a part of this label? And they could look at the financials and see they probably won't make as much money being a part of the label. But what I found over and over was that the social validation of being signed mm -hmm. was more meaningful than anything for uh, so many of these artists. And a lot of the reason for that was just wanting to prove to their parents their siblings, their significant other, their friends, whoever, that what they're doing had value and was real. Mm -hmm. And that uh, an external label gave that validation to a degree that, you know, allowed someone, gave them a, an, an emotional respite from a lot of doubt about, you know, a creative career um, and just let them move forward with more confidence. And so in seeing those sort of emotional benefits, I really helped a lot of artists go and like find labels. And it also made me think, this was pre-Kickstarter, this was for you know, a few years before Kickstarter, mm -hmm. but it made me think a lot about with Kickstarter, how can this be a similarly validating moment for people to right. where it's that moment where everyone you know can look at you and say, oh man, it's like, that thing you're doing, it's real. You know, that you've been, you've been practicing oboe for years. I always gave you shit about, <laughs> wow, look at this now, you know, that kind of affirmation. And just really seeing that for most of us, like that's really what we need. We need that moment to be able to say to ourselves for sure, I haven't been wasting my time in my life. And if you can give, if someone can get that, it is like the, it is one of the single greatest gifts you can receive as a human being to have, even for a moment, that certainty uh, that a hard path was worth it. And, and so thinking of, yeah, Kickstarter as being like the, you know, the people's record label, the, the, the people's movie studio, the place where we can 
we can endorse and validate our own peers' ideas without the need of some external force was like a, a strong motivator and, and an aspiration I had for like, if this really works, this is what it will do for people. It will give people that emotional feeling of, I have value, which as a creative person, the moments where you are t- told you have value are very few and far between. This is true. I relate with this on multiple levels. Creatives are left a little bit on the side there. And the support is something great, right? If I'm an oboe expert, finally that day when it's like, look, I am playing oboe in front of the Philharmonic crew something. And then this is a statement piece. I think about that sometimes because it's like, why did we need that in the first place for that person to say that? But until then, it's like we weren't good enough for the universe in some form. There's some like self-esteem things here. I mean, there's some very basic a lot of humanity happening, happening in these dynamics, but it's, and in this need, of course, is not just for people who haven't experienced it before. Everyone has these kinds of needs. And, you know, a, a moment I remember in Kickstarter very clearly is when the Veronica Mars project launched. So Veronica Mars had been a canceled TV show, actually the lowest rated television show. And then um, about 10 years later, a Kickstarter project brought back this movie to like continue the story. And it was, Kind of the ultimate fan-led campaign of, of saving, um, you know, a, a distressed property, and um, and the, it took about two years for that project to come together. Um, about two years of myself working with Rob Thomas, the creator of Veronica Mars and Party Down, a lot of other great shows. Uh, he and I trying to convince Warner Brothers to let him do this, and it was a very, very long, uh, long heart. You know, it took two years to get there, and. I was with Rob when the project launched in Austin. I was in Austin sitting with him in his, his office when the project launched and had a $2 million goal. And it reached that $2 million within like five hours or something of launching. That's and great. for 10 years, you know, Rob had been told that his, his idea was no good. You know, he got, you got your shot, it failed. You don't get to do it anymore. And for 10 years, he tried to get off the ground again and been told no. And then within five hours of being able to just put his idea to the public, rather than having to convince a single executive to do this, suddenly he had his money and could do it. And it was, um, and it was an extremely emotionally overwhelming moment for him. And Kristen Bell uh, was also like on Skype with us that day. And, um, and, you know, for those, for the people that were in the show and that made the show, like that moment for them was, you know, they maybe were they're proud of Veronica Mars first, and then it gets canceled. You have weird feelings about this thing you did. And then there was this moment of real recognition where it was just extremely overwhelming. And it was one of the most, uh, you know, emotionally significant moments, you know, I think that, that Rob had experienced uh, up until that point of just having the entire internet, what feels like the whole world saying, we value you. You know, you have... You have given us the chance to be to help you and be a part of what you do, and we are overjoyed by that. And you know, those are like big emotions and and things that really hit you hard. And you know, they they those things fade with time, but those moments are incredibly important and resonant. And even for famous, successful people, those moments have that same, that same level of impact. And so to get it from the public and, and, you know, in like a concentrated way is awesome. And, um, and I, you know, one of the things I'm happiest about in Kickstarter is, is that getting to happen for people? How many times I've been able to like watch as that someone experiences those feelings and um, it's, it's magical. You're passing on a great feeling. And also, it sounds like you're fixing the error of just a few people dictating all the elements for everybody, whereas there's a lot of other people who would also be supportive. It's like connecting those who would be supportive of those who could use it. It's like a networking mindset. Have you always had some sort of networking mindset versus like linear thinking like, how do we connect these fields or these people? I don't know. I think my mindset is um, 
I'm like a I'm like a digger. I'm just always digging into things, trying to understand them more, um, going deeper. Um, I look at things upside down a lot. Um, but I, you know, I think that um, yeah, you know, just just this is uh, yeah. I mean, the cultural products that are around us and so much of the world around us is largely shaped by the value systems that decide what is a good and a bad idea, right? So in a value system where financial value is king and decisions are expected to result in the growth of more financial value, then ideas that have value are ones that will make someone else money. And ideas that are not gonna make someone else money just are like irrelevant in this world. Like what is it, what, is, what even is this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think Kickstarter allowed people to define their own values for why they're creating projects. It's not to get rich. I'm making this because my neighborhood needs it, because I love it, because I can't let this idea go for whatever reason, you know. It's all and, a problem. Yeah. And we're saying like all of those things are valid. All those things are valid. And Kickstarter itself is a universe where every motivation to create something is a valid one if other people connect with it. And through that, you know, 150,000 projects have been funded, new ideas have happened. But that same notion of uh, a, a lim- an output limited by the values that determine uh, what is a good and a bad idea is affecting all of the world, all of society. You know, why do schools function the way they do? Why does healthcare function the way it does? Why, you know, a lot of things at the root, it comes down to, well, the value we've put at the highest is financial value. So ultimately, if you work back all these decisions, you will see that the, the net output is that it's an increase in financial growth. And so for that reason, these sorts of decisions are defensible. Um, you know, my book, This Could Be Our Future, is about that, about that idea of how that value of financial value became dominant. Because uh, my book says that, and I believe that this hasn't always been the case. This has been especially the last 50 years that financial value has really dominated our thinking. One of the ways I show this is that UCLA has done a survey every year since the 1960s of college freshmen all across the country and all across the United States and, and asking them about a lot of their life goals, things like that. And one of the questions is like, which of these things is important to you? Which of these life goals is important to you? And they list like 12 life goals, like having a family, uh, being good at your job, things like that. And um, in 1970, the number one life goal for college freshmen was to quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. And 86% of college freshmen said that was essential. Mm-hmm. Now there's one question on that list that has to do with money, being well off financially, being rich. And in 1970, the percentage of college freshmen who said being rich was essential was 26%, 26%. The most recent year this study came out a couple of years ago, because they still do it every year. Um, The number one life goal for college freshmen was to be rich. 86% of college freshmen said that was essential. The same number who had said having a meaningful philosophy on life was essential before. And now, yeah, meaningful philosophy of life is like less than half of students say that's essential now. And so what we've seen over the course of the last 50 years is that we've gone from a world that operated according to values, moral ideas of right and wrong, who are you, how do you relate to the world, to instead a world ruled by value, an economic notion of that term, a financial and numeric expression of that same idea of like what is right or good, except now we've just sort of shorthanded the math down to just money. Money is like the approximation of that. And there's many defensible reasons for this. It's like easier to track and measure money than it is like beauty. You know, these moral values are quite <laughs> difficult. It's like we're making every decision according to moral values. Things take longer. It's yeah. you know, a lot of language barriers. You know, there, there's many valid reasons for this. Mm-hmm. But the ultimate end result is that all decisions now must satisfy a financial need or else they are like irrelevant, invalid decisions. And so it's put ourselves into a world where we are routinely just only optimizing for one value and having many negative outcomes, uh, chief among them, CO2 emissions and destruction of our environment that just like aren't, you know, we consider them externalities now. But what is happening right now, we are in the midst of the largest value shift in human history, definitely since the industrial revolution. And the values are changing. The values are changing. Uh, the, 
carbon, CO2 as a value is rising incredibly, especially with Biden in office, you know, as of a week ago. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be rapidly moving from a financial economy to a carbon economy. And we are, and, and the, the, the internet and digital tools, which allow us to measure all these tiny intricacies of how human beings interact and how we relate to each other, that makes the identification of new values and measurements and metrics possible for the first time, right? Like before money was the gold standard because it's the thing everybody counts. It's the one thing worth counting. We don't count how many friends we all have because like, what is the use of that? What, like there's no, it's too expensive. Yeah, there's no, like what, why would you do that? But now digitally, digitally counting things is zero cost. Tracking things is zero cost. Like generating values that let us understand why or how certain decisions are made are effectively zero cost. And so what that means is that those same values and measurements we are now, and it's, it's already happened, are gonna be used to distribute goods and services. It's gonna be used to decide who gets access to things. It's no longer gonna be about who pays the most. It's gonna be about other kinds of factors. And so a, a real life example of this is Adele, the pop star Adele, when she goes on tour, like all big artists, her tickets immediately sell out. And like, you have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars more to get a scalp ticket. And so Adele, um, Adele found a startup that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to her. And they used this algorithm to identify like the top 30 percentile Adele fans in each market, offer them the chance to buy a ticket at a low face value. They could resell the ticket if they wanted to, but the theory was that if they optimize for the value for for the loyalty of the fan, that they would create a different kind of value based experience. And and this actually ended up working. Like less than two percent of those tickets got resold. Fans saved millions of pounds for these shows. And Adele was able to make a mathematical, replicable, algorithmic decision to distribute her services according to not who paid the most but according to another value set. And so these kinds of multi-layered, multi-value transactions, I think of them as being kind of post-capitalist transactions where, you are, like where you are satisfying, money. yeah, you are satisfying a financial minimum, right? Because Adela isn't losing money on the shows. She made sure to set it so she's not losing money. So she's satisfying a financial minimum, but she's maximizing for a non-financial value. And so this is going to increasingly be how it is that we are exchanging with each other. And this is, is how we're going to begin to reorder and rebalance the world. And so my book and my project of the Bento Society is about what I believe is a 30 year process by which these ideas go from nascent and weird and things that sometimes make us uncomfortable to something so boring and invisible we don't even think to talk about it anymore. And, and I believe that process takes 30 years. So many things go through my mind, but one key one is the values as they change. So let's say 30 years ago, a lot of traditional people would use a phrase like, don't you want nice things? And they would refer to things like a car or a residence, but they weren't happy. And I don't know if a lot of those people are happy at all right now, which looks odd. And so this is almost like a rehash of that, but actually do you want actual nice things that you like as a person, like that make you feel good in total versus at certain points when you're showcasing things to people. And then later on, when you're by yourself, you're once again in some trapped mindset. Right. Because that other idea of, yeah, get the nice car to make you happy is imagining it's only seeing the outer life, right? It's only seeing the outer life. And, and I don't think that was like an, an evil, you know, there, like there, there, you know, there's a world where it's like commercials, saying if you get an Oldsmobile, you'll like move up a class level and you know all these sort of aspirational marketing. Those things are kind of true. <laughs> There's a way in which they're true. It's just also true that they don't actually make you happy. Um, and so I think, yes, in the past, capitalism and products were speaking to the service level, the, the surface level of who we are. With like, you know, the Edward Bernays, like there, there's a lot of pulling on, um, you know, our deeper motivations, um, of course. But you know, now I think that we have a more nuanced understanding of what motivates us. Uh, every product category is so crowded with so many options that people can, you know, they fine tune to get to the exact, you know, micro segment 
um, to which to sell their product to. And all that ultimately is just netting out, is going to net out in a very different kind of marketplace. I think still a marketplace fundamentally, um, but it's just no longer going to be who pays the most that decides who gets things. It's going to be what have you done before? How long have you been a part of this community? How much time have you spent? I mean, you see this like, think about YouTube. You know, you can pay to watch a YouTube video by watching a 30 second pre-roll or by paying $10 a month. You know, there, there are video game downloadable content upgrades that you only get if you play a certain number of hours in the game, right? So the, the currencies are shifting. And I think they're, they're shifting in large part because the internet and the digitization of life makes it easy, makes it easy. And, and, and we're going to find that there's a lot of interesting opportunity there. You know, it, if you are starting a, a company in any category, um, it is not enough to say we need to be, uh, we need to operate in the black and serve our customers well. Now you have to have another purpose to your business. You do, you have to have a non-financial purpose that is driving you that will result in you being financially solvent, that will result in growth, that will result in the other things that you need. But ultimately, like every category gets crowded enough and eventually, you know, it, it comes down to you have to distinguish yourself by what is it that you're providing customers to make them give a shit about you. You know, I was I, I, watching the record stores in New York City all disappear while I, while I was living there uh, was super, uh, I don't know, just eye-opening because, you know, Napster MP3s happen. Um, so the, the music industry starts to, you know, disappear. And when I first went to New York, there's a record store practically on every, practically on every street. And then they started to close down in the early 2000s. And the first record stores to close were Virgin, HMV, Tower, Chains, Chains. Because, because no one actually cared about them. It's <laughs> the place you went in, and, and the stores didn't care. I mean, sure, certainly the people who work there cared, but in general, they're just like a place that sells merchandise and they sell it for more than they pay for it. And so that's why it's a business. The record stores that lasted the longest and the record stores that still exist today in New York were highly specialized. You know, it was other music, the indie store, you know, now gone. It was, it was Academy Records still there focusing on classical and jazz. It were record stores that existed for another reason. They existed to serve the community. They existed because they, there was like a genre that was otherwise like no one else paid attention to. There was a non-financial justification for their existence. Mm -hmm. And as a result, those places, many of them still exist. You know, harder still, harder after the pandemic, of course. But but having that non-financial purpose allowed them to survive like this cataclysmic moment that destroyed the whole industry. But yet, because they weren't in it to sell records, they were in it because they love music. Because there's a community that loves that music for these other reasons, they're able to survive and still exist. And it's not easy to run those kinds of businesses. I mean, it's. You spend a lot of days wondering, shit, should I just like sell out? Should I just go for it? You know, because you feel like you're losing when everyone else is doing all their big things. But those are the businesses that last. Those are the thousand-year-old Japanese businesses, you know, and, and it requires a, a different mentality and, and a different notion of the value you are creating. But ultimately, at this stage of capitalism and where we are in the world, um, I think unless you're starting a climate-related company, like it's what you have to do. You know, uh, otherwise, who gives a shit? This is, I like, many things you're describing are things I'm very interested in. I was recently speaking with Mauro Guillen. His book is called 2030, and it talks about the next 10 years and when we're, where we are headed. And some of the elements you are describing relate directly with that. If you aren't talking about, let's say, climate or the larger population, of people on the planet you're missing the main concepts and to return to you speak often about short-term versus long-term i've always been long-term oriented and in the short term sometimes you look out of place but in the long term suddenly everything comes back into your zone bento is based on that have you always been long-term oriented even from when you were small um no i don't think so um, I mean, I think the way to think about the bento, you know, so bento is a framework. Um, mm -hmm. It's a mental model. It's mm -hmm. like a 
two by two visual chart with four boxes that illustrate what I say is your full self-interest. There's now me in the bottom left, what I want and need right now as an individual, how we think of self-interest right now. Mm-hmm. In the bottom right, there's future me, the older, wiser version of me that I hope I will someday become. Uh, and the top left is now us, the people in my life who depend on me and vice versa. And the top right is future us, my kids and everybody else's kids, or even the future version of myself. And so the idea of the bento as a mental model is to say that we default when we think about self-interest to this now me concept. What do I as a person want right this second? But in reality, that's just a small slice of our actual self-interest. You know, there's there are these future considerations with these other people. All of these things are actually part of who we are. But society has defined for us this like atomic notion of an individual um, that continues to persist in how we think about things. Um, and you know, I created the bento. I think in part, I like to help myself, you know, because I don't do as good enough job as I want to thinking about these things, right? Like I, twist. yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I am, I need help thinking about the long-term. I need help integrating other people into my thinking. I, I try to do those things. I aspire to, I try to be a thoughtful person, but, you know, I had to look at my life and see there are plenty of instances where I've responded to a moment by being scared or by not, you know, not being grounded in what I cared about. And, and ultimately, like, I think making a worse decision as a result. So the bento is a tool that I first built so that I could be a better person, you know, so that I could not let myself down from what I expected for myself. And that is still a battle. It's still a battle. And, um, but like the bento gives me a tool and and just like very squarely orients me, you know. But but the you know the stories, the the short term stories we tell ourselves, the ways that we feel fearful and afraid, um, the ways that you know the external culture affects how we define ourselves and others. Like I am just as much as subject to those things, and uh, I struggle with them too. And ultimately, my me being honest about that was me creating the bento and saying, well, shit, I just can't, I can't just keep getting mad at myself. You know, what is this doing for me? I need, I need help. I need help. And, and, and this was like the simplest, dumbest thing possible. Four boxes. I'm going to have four boxes. And when I think about things, I'm going to force myself to think about them from each of these four boxes. And what I was shocked by was how much that helped. And how much that changed of a lot of my life. And, and, and shortly after I first came up with it, um, I reached out to a friend in LA who sometimes hosted events in her house. And I said, can I, can you like put together a salon for me? I want to try sharing an idea. And I, I wanted to know if I could say this idea in front of other people and like not throw up and then see what they said. You know, <laughs> I was a little terrified because like, wait, you know, cause I came up with the idea, the name Bentoism right from the start. I'm like, what is, what am I doing here? But it all felt right to me. So I did, I, a couple weeks later, I went to a friend's house in Silver Lake and spoke to about 40 people presenting it. And um, I was so terrified and it went amazingly. It went amazingly. The questions people asked, like, opened up new parts of the idea. I could immediately feel that it worked for people, that it made sense for people. And, you know, that was a moment that gave me confidence to say, okay, this is not just like me talking to myself. Um, There's something of value here. And so, you know, I've been pulling on that thread uh, ever since. But, you know, I, it's really true. Your your decisions look very different once you see see more than just what really the now me voice is kind of that's it's kind of your most fearful voice. And once you, you know, the, the point of the bento is it, you're not ignoring that voice. Like now me is still there. It is a core voice you listen to, but you're just putting it in the context of these other voices to listen to as well. And it's 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 it yeah it's it's grounding and and it and, and it creates rationally different choices that still fulfill your values, are, are more deeply tied to who you are in many ways, 
And, and it doesn't enforce any, any ideology on you other than just like, just being aware, just be aware, <laughs> be aware of who you are in the world, be aware of your impact on other people, be aware that the future exists, whatever else you believe, whatever your political beliefs are, whatever, all, it could be whatever you want. Just if we are all more aware of just this very basic things, I, I think that does a lot um, to greatly improving a lot of people's lives. I have to say, self-awareness is huge. I was thinking to myself because so much of what you were saying makes me think of related concepts. And I thought to myself, why is that? Because it's way more than the average individual. And part of it is because you're very right there and open and life is always backwards. The person that says something like, I need help in that open and warm voice needs way less help to me than the person who never says that. And like, they'll be the last thing they'd ever say. It's so inverted. But you know, but it takes to say, I need help. It took, honestly, what it took was me getting sick of myself, right? It's like you get, you just get pissed off at yourself for the mental games you play, the ways you get in your way. And, and it eventually for me became motivating of just like, <laughs> I'm tired of this. I'm tired of like, you know, kind of, kind of a mode I would go into that I came to view as like the least, the single least helpful thing I could do was I would spend my days wondering. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wonder about something. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna, cure, I'm gonna pontificate about what would happen if I did this or that. I would wonder. Right. And, and what I realized was that wondering was just creating all these neuroses, because wondering was just like, oh, all these ways I could be better or ways that I fell short. And, and still just this, this process of wondering had no action in it. There's no expectation of action. It was just a kind of a masturbation, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. And to instead to shift that from like, I want to stop wondering. And I just want to like, learn how to act on these feelings I have inside of me. And that, that took getting exasperated with myself. You know, and it's funny, like, there, there are funny ways that self-anger can be helpful. It can be motivating. I'm mm -hmm. just like, I am sick of me. And you know what? I just can't. I'm not going to just keep keep doing the same thing I'm doing. I have to, I have to be smart enough to realize it's not going to work for me. But, you know, I, I wish I could say that's like, a, you know, an instant reaction. But in reality, you have to, you know, I, I had to wear myself down to kind of get to that point where I could do that, you know, because a lot of times you're just sort of, you're fighting it. You don't want to, you don't want to acknowledge, you know, the ways you are weaker than you wish to be, you know? And, and so it's um, a little bit of it is that, yeah, you have to get kind of pissed off. And I think pissed off at yourself is a good, you know, as long as you can direct that energy, uh, I think that, I think that can be in, in your service as a person. So I go, what is this? I have to pass this activation energy hump. I have no choice. I don't like it this way, right? To get to a point of action or change, it's the nice thing. I don't like the opposite. I like uh, when that occurs versus sometimes I'll see an individual and I feel like they're in this plateau where they're not gonna get there and they're not using anger to get up there and they're just stuck and they know they're stuck. And once in a while you see little glimmers of them wanting to reach, but it doesn't really, you're like, dang it. You would want, I almost want to be like, I'm going to be angry so that you can be angry. So that pass it on. It's hard. It's really, it's really hard because if you're stuck, you know, and I've been stuck many mm -hmm. times, um, you know, a lot of times you're stuck. You're like, it's, it's scary to start opening the door of like, why am I stuck? Because it might be that, you know, you know, that there's a couple of decisions that alive in your life that you cannot really defend. You know, you're, you're in a relationship that isn't good for you. You're, you know, you're not, you're not pursuing your dreams. You're, you're eating poorly. What do you, you, we have an awareness. Mm -hmm. we, we, I think most unhappy people have a pretty good awareness of like why they're unhappy, you mm -hmm. know, um, right. acting on it is something that's, you know, a, a, a much step, you know, a higher step. That again, we need help. We, we tend to need help to do. And that help can be therapy. That help can be mental models. That help can be a friend. You know, friends are excellent to this. So just tell me, 
are my, uh, is this real? <laughs> are my feelings real? Am I just talking to myself? Like, can I just say this out loud to another person? And it's amazing how it dissipates at that moment. You know, it's like a, a puff of mist that just evaporates once you say the awful thing out loud to another soul. There's a lot of good. Whenever there's so much good, I, I'm more quiet. Usually I'm saying all that stuff, but when there's a lot of good, suddenly I get a little, because it's nice. I feel connected with the earth again. It is true. The challenges of being our actual selves. I like to pass on self-awareness when, when possible as well. Now, wonderful. By the way, I want to point out just in the middle for no reason, Yancy Strickler, wonderful. Okay, everybody, shout outs. Now, I'll just do stuff like that. But a few tangents that came to my mind, I want to include so many. But um, one concept I liked in your book was that you had a drawing where it was like a person thinking of their project uh, growth, it's like one arrow. But then actually, in truth, there's like thousands of people in your arrow, the small arrow in the package of everybody else's big mm -hmm. arrows of activity. Um, how does one uh, look to that? Is that, can they use that in a motivational way? Or is that to keep them to think, okay, wait a minute, uh, there's me, but there's also a bigger context that I might want to take part in. You know, I think it's, um... I mean, I think that we need, there's a deep programming that's happening now of, you know, we have a high, there's like a, a very, a high stickiness of individualism as a concept and as a way of defining ourselves. And the idea that I'm an isolated individual who, you know, am facing forces against me or feeling alienated against the world, all these kinds of things like that is a hard thought. It's also a comfortable thought. It's a thought we know very well. Um, to begin to question that and to open up the idea that actually your identity as an individual is defined, yes, by who you are when you're alone, um, but it's defined just as much by your relationships, by your reputation, by your aspirations, by the experiences you've had before, um, and that you fit into a larger context. You know, it's it might initially seem disempowering. It might seem like, oh, you know, I, I was the I was the big fish in a small pond of being an individual. I'm the king of my castle, of me. And instead, the idea that, oh, you are among many people who are flowing through all these different areas in different contexts. Um, yeah, that to our to our steadfast belief in individualism, that sounds like a loss. It sounds like we're losing. It sounds like we're we're becoming less special. But the truth is that the more you are an isolated individual, the more miserable you are, the, the, the lesser your life experience, the, the more limited you are in so many other ways. And, um, and yet, you know, our, our structure of self uh, lends us to think that that is a preferable outcome. It's better to be, you know, a lonely individual An than it is to be a happy lemming or something like that, right? And... And so, I, you know, what I believe is that our, our definition of individualism is changing. And I believe that the 21st century will be defined by post-individualism, where we take it as a given that everyone is an individual with your own unique experiences that make you uniquely who you are, and that all of our unique experiences are valuable and valid, and they form us and shape us, and we must see the truth in them. However, while also all being individuals, What's super amazing as a result of that is that there are all these ways that we are incredibly similar, that all of our individual experiences, no matter where we come from, actually that there's quite a bit that we have in common with other people and their individual experiences. And that the amount that you can learn from your experiences is so much greater when you could see that larger pattern recognition. And the power you have is so much greater being a part of that larger group than as an individual. And so there are, are all kinds of fantastic incentives for losing your grip on individualism as what defines you. But it's a scary thing to let go of. It's a scary thing to let go of for people of, a, of, of certain generations. You know, I, I'm Gen X. We're a very highly individualistic uh, generation brought up to be that way. Mm -hmm. 
generations happening now are not, are not. Gen Z and younger, these are networked. This is, this is a networked individual. Like our notion of who we are as people is, is dramatically changing. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, you see, you see these phrases like uh, on Twitter talking about like your squad, your squad wealth, you know, what is your wealth? Your wealth is, is the wealth of your squad. This like, is my crew. Yeah. What are, what are the skill sets and abilities and connections of the people that are closest to you, of your us? Because that is actually, that is actually your power. Your power is not what you as an individual to do, but your power is what you as an individual and the other people that are part of your circle can do. That is your power. And the more you widen that circle, the more powerful you become. And this is what we are beginning to learn. And, um, and it, it's, it's going to change the world, you know, and, and it's a, a tremendous threat to so many of the institutions that are alive now that are built on individualism. You know, I think we'll find that capitalism will roll with this pretty well because selling a product to someone based on other people also needing to like it is something that capitalism has been doing for a long time. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that the, the values that are a part of our decisions and a part of our transactions are going to expand instead of it just being a product is meant to appeal to an individual consumer and drive them to a point of purchase and blah, blah, blah. Instead, it's going to be, well, to get a consumer to make this decision, it must mean we speak to all these other values that we now see are ascendant. It must improve their social desirability. It must increase their connections to others. It might, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And so suddenly these things become the new prerequisites in our exchanges with one another. Whereas in the past, the only prerequisite has really been that, you know, and every transaction that the house is making as much money as possible. I mean, we're seeing it right now with, you know, GameStop and all the shadiness that's happening now, like the house wins. That, is, that has been the rule of individualism, capitalism, all this, and, and the house or the, you know, these, these systems of power. Um, but those things are changing. They're changing. They, 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 they're, they're, they, have no, they have no relevance to a, a modern person, a person growing up today. They feel old. They feel antiquated. They feel like, what the hell even is this shit? And the internet is just is just turning us into different organisms than we've been before. So this like this breakdown and rebuilding of individualism, um, I believe, is like one of I think that and the shift of values to me those are the two macro trends that are reshaping the world. How we define our self interest versus being me as an isolated individual versus me being a part of a network, and that. The only thing that's valuable shifting from being money to, well, what's valuable is actually anything that we can measure and that brings me more of what I want in any facet of my life. And it's, it's, gonna, re, it's gonna remake the world. Speaking of that, I was gonna bring that up. This week has happened to be interesting with GameStop and AMC and Nokia and those stocks being pumped up. Could that have happened like that 30 years ago or is it more of a, collectivist moment we are in yes it's 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 this is like the human ingenuity that pops out if you stick a bunch of people in a room for a while you know this is this is (laughs) this is the human brain you know just showing its magnificence i think um and you know this yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, you want you want these you want you want this thinking to be applied to other problems too, and and it will. We're the same. What's happening now for like Wall Street bets? It's going to happen with with carbon removal. You know, with CO two extraction. Like it, the same. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, and it just shows how brilliant people can be, and and all the reasons to be optimistic about humanity. And what it also shows is the extreme shadiness of systems that. Uh, don't play fair. And so I, I think that this week with, uh, you know, things always feel heaviest when you're right in the moment, but this feels like a, a truly radicalizing event for a lot of people. You know, I, I think this is, might end up being like a housing crisis kind of emotional folks. moment for folks of just like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? You know, y'all, y'all are so crooked. You can't even, you can't even lose straight. Like you're, you're, you're blocking us from <laughs> winning our trades and like, and this is the game and this is the game. And um, I think this will, you know, increase 
momentum pushing against many institutions, uh, seeing, seeing these systems being tilted to work for the unknown number of people who are actually in power. You know, this, this just says to us that the world is truly being run by bankers. Um, I mean, the amazing book, Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, this new sci-fi book that's about the next 30 years, how we solve climate change. Mm -hmm. um, the conclusion of that book is that the most powerful people in the world are bankers. Because in the end, the ability to solve climate change in this book comes down to convincing bankers to create a carbon coin that basically allows CO2 in the atmosphere to become our, our, our new form of currency, basically. And once they do that, humanity is quickly able to turn, to turn the tides. But in the end, it took convincing five bankers that, to do this. And, um, and so I think that, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm never going to bet against the network. I'm never, as, as, as cronyism, as crony is as these systems can be, I'm not going to bet against the network. And not that I think the network will always do good things. It won't. We clearly see that it won't, but you know, I, I'm just such an optimist and a believer in, in humanity. And, and I, I'm excited by our ingenuity and I, I believe in human potential. And like, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pessimist about, about our future because it's, it's future versions of ourselves who will be dealing with these issues and people are smart, people are smart, you know? And, and, and so I think that this was a, yeah, this week is a radicalizing moment. And I think it's gonna be bad for established institutions. It's gonna increase all the momentum against them. But I think ultimately this is a good thing. It's like a shakeup in a moment of punctuated equilibrium. Yeah. These things are very healthy. And the market is like evolution responding to the moment. And obviously for the younger folks, they look at things more clearly like this is what we're dealing with. And those who are entrenched, ah, it's all right. We have a gated protection between us and that. There's so much there. One item I wanted to bring up was idea space, your content output as far as text and also now uh, podcast form. Can you tell us about I Idea Space and your thoughts there? Yeah, I've been writing a weekly, monthly newsletter for, I guess, three and a half years now um, called The Idea Space. It's at ideaspace.substack.com. And the phrase Idea Space comes from a term coined by um, Alan Moore, the graphic novelist, V for Vendetta, Watchman, Alan Moore. And he described the idea space as being the place where ideas originate, that um, just as there is a physical world that we all inhabit, there's a spiritual world um, that maybe or maybe does not, does not exist. There's also an idea world where uh, ideas just float around. And, and, and actually that the idea space is even more powerful than the physical world because things that originate there reshape our physical space. And so the idea space is actually the most powerful of all these realms. And Alan Moore further um, theorizes that uh, it would be possible then for an idea to be created in the idea space separate of any human involvement and that that idea might just permeate into human minds. And so he says like the way multiple people have the idea for the telephone at the same moment is perhaps it was the idea space fed it to us. So um, I read about this in an amazing book by the author, John Higgs about a band called the KLF. And um, yeah, and so the idea space is a, is a forum exploring you know, nascent ideas, um, you know, it's theories of the universe along the lines of what we've talked about. And, and, you know, and digging into areas that the bento touches on, especially the, the frontiers of value and self-interest. And, um, and so this year, the idea space's focus will be almost exclusively interviewing experts and people who are doing this kind of work. Um, so for the first three months of this year, focusing on data scientists specifically, uh, this notion of how new values will change our choices, so I'm talking to people who are involved in the measuring of those new values or people who are skeptical and just trying to get a sense of like, where are we, where are things going? Um, and, and yeah, and, and trying, you know, my, my goal in this work is to create a clear picture in people's minds of, you know, this sort of alternate system uh, uh, of value and self that we are moving towards and, and trying to make it something that people 
um, can conceptualize and that we can begin deliberately moving towards, you know, designing businesses or organizations or communities that try to serve what we think of as these, you know, the needs of this new world being. Um, and so, yeah, so the idea space, I, I, I you know, it's free, I, I publish weekly and, and it's tied into the larger work of the Bento Society, which is to be, you know, internet first community and institution that is exploring and promoting post-capitalist values that is teaching people the mental model of the bento to help you think more long-term, to help you think about other people. And that is you know, trying to do the research and, and do the R&D work to help make these things really a, a practical reality around us. Um, and so I'm, I'm full-time focused on that community building and kind of knowledge generation um, you know, touching on all these areas that we talked about. And uh, it's awesome. You know, it's, it's a community of hundreds of folks from around the world. And, and yeah, it's going great. As you were speaking, or earlier, it makes me think of certain people like Gary Vaynerchuk or Nipsey Hussle, the, the rapper. Yeah. Different messages you're presenting relate with their concepts. Are there any individuals that come to mind that you like to model after mm -hmm. or that um, you check their material regularly or might be good to speak with? I think the, you know, my two like, uh, I mean, heroes of mine, my modern contemporary heroes would be um, three economists, Mariana Mazzucato, who is a English American Italian economist who has written um, multiple phenomenal books, in particular, The Entrepreneurial State. And she argues for a sort of a post-financial concept of value. She is brilliant and, and one of the most powerful people, influential people in the world right now. People really listen to her. Um, another is Kate Rawworth, who is another economist. She's the creator of Donut Economics, which is quickly becoming maybe the most adapted new paradigm for an economic model. Her idea is that rather than pursuing, pursuing these hockey stick charts of graphs going up, instead we should pursue staying in a donut of safety where like we don't go too high, we don't go too low, we're trying to maintain an equilibrium. And so it's a, a new model for success based on an equilibrium. She's, she's got a lot of support for there. Amsterdam's adopted it, Finland's adopted it. Like that might end up being the new model. Um, and then finally, there's a, uh, a philosopher named Elizabeth Anderson, um, who's a professor at the University of Michigan, whose writings on ethics and economics like I'm the pop sellout to all of her ideas. Um, she is unbelievably brilliant and amazing. And I've been fortunate to get to talk to her multiple times and her books are tremendous. Um, but I, I view her as maybe like one of the, the godmothers of where we are now. Um, and so those, like those three women, I believe, like know what's up and are leading the way. And I, I am uh, a, a happy deputy slash maybe someday peer to them, you know? And, um, and then, you know, other, you know, otherwise, I mean, I, I'm very inspired being a music person. Um, I've always been very inspired by the band Fugazi and, uh, and they're a punk band from DC. They were just hyper egalitarian and, um, you know, always charge $5 for a show, 10 bucks for a CD. Um, they would always, always play all ages shows. And they had this rule. They're all about just like, ethical egalitarianism. And if you went to a Fugazi show, you paid your five bucks. And if you didn't like the show, you got your money back. And they would always have standing by the door, a person there with a wad of fives re ready to give people back their money if they chose to leave. And there's just like a, just a code, a value code that runs through absolutely everything Fugazi has ever done and that they do not deviate from, never deviated from and just created such a, such a beautiful ethical, you know, space. And, um, and so, I, you know, that they had such a huge effect on me as a kid. And still I look at it as like a, the embodiment of what it is to be principled. And, um, and so that's, that's an inspiration that I, I fall short of, but, but it's certainly like what I think of as what it means to run a, you know, to create an egalitarian, movement, you know, and, and they're creating something in egalitarian where they're like, they're on stage and everyone else is on the floor, you know, but it's still, you're, you're in it together. 
in a way that's, to me, that looks more like the future, I think, than where we are now. A future without large systems shortchanging a lot of people. What a different moment. I know that your time is valuable and always value people's time. This is something I do. It would be great to speak with you in the future, but for this moment, I'm glad to have had you on this episode of the show. Thank you for joining. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Armin. It's been great. Same here. And we are out.